thank you for joining us on this live webinar, Ask an Attorney. I'm not the attorney. Tom Grieve is the attorney. I'm Kevin Michalowski, editor of Concealed Carry Magazine. Tom, one of the state's leading defense attorneys and a former prosecutor, and just an all-around nice guy. So today, topic... You feeling okay? Like, no, uh, no, I actually hit a deer with my truck this That's morning. That's what you just yeah. said, but we didn't so, really have enough time to go yeah, into it to figure so, it out. Uh, but. Just made it to work, you know. Okay. You know, so it's, uh, yeah, it's been kind of a stressful morning. Yeah, so, yeah that's always a fun, yeah. fun truck, morning. Truck is as dead as the deer, so... But uh, today we'll be talking about the aftermath of a deadly force incident. If you are involved in a shooting, what you can expect to happen. So I'll, I'll let you... Uh, and not you know, truck versus deer. Yeah, no, not okay, truck versus right. deer. That, uh, right. that, that happened all the time. That already quickly. happened once. Yeah, it's, it's over with. Yeah, That's the, the 8 a.m. video. The deer did not survive. Missed. I made my report to the police. Gotcha. Um, it, was, it was actually an officer that I knew. And, uh, okay. Well, so it was, it was go. going pretty well. That's good. So, That's good. So yes, aftermath of a shooting. What you can expect is in-depth investigation and... Lots of meetings with guys like Tom, not only as a defense attorney, but as a prosecutor probably too. You're going to be talking to investigators and other folks like that. So um, let's get right into it. Um, immediately following a, a deadly force incident, you use your gun immediately following that. What can the, let's say the good guy, the person who was attacked and defended him or herself, what can that person expect? Well, for starters, so when, once the police have arrived or just... The gun went off, the bad guy's taken away, what happens next? Yeah, yeah, right, af right after that. I mean, we know we're supposed to call 911. Right. And we know that police are going to arrive, and we've talked about this yeah. in depth before. Police are going to arrive amped up, and they're going to be ready for anything. So um, I actually just witnessed a, uh, a shooting in Charlottesville, um, watched the video of it of a police officer telling a man to drop his gun. When he didn't drop his gun, she shot him. Mm. And then he said before he died, but you told me to drop my gun. And, uh, um, you know, she had told him 15 times over the space of 40 seconds to drop your gun. So but we, he did not, he did not drop his gun huh. and uh, then <coughs> reached for it and was pulling it out from underneath his, his oh, coat. So, um, so, yes, follow every order that the police give you and put your hands up and, and ask questions. Make it clear. I'm not moving. What would you like me to do now? Um, if you just sit there quietly fiddling around in your pocket, you're probably going to get shot by the cops. So um, let's assume that after the police have arrived and okay. securing the scene means they're going to be putting you on the ground until they know what's going on. Got it. Well, assuming that you survived your first two encounters of the day, the first one's, of course, with the bad guy. The second one is with law enforcement for exactly the reasons that Kevin just went into. They're going to be asking you some questions, and they don't know if you're the good guy or bad guy, even if you're the one that called 911. So they're probably not going to be super nice to you right off the bat. I'm sorry. It is what it is. You're just going to have to move on with life. But once you've gone through those initial commands, you've survived that initial police encounter, if the bad guy got away, they're probably going to ask you some questions just to get the quick, what happened here? And they're trying to figure out, are you the victim? Are you the bad guy? Are you a witness? Where do you fit in this equation? Just super fast. All they know probably is, you know, there's been a, there's some sort of gun or firearm that went off and they know that they've got one of the people. Well, usually in a self-defense encounter, there's multiple folks involved, right? The shooter, the shootee, or maybe two shooters. So they're gonna ask you some questions about, look, what did the other guy look like? Where did they take off to, assuming they're not down at the scene? If they are down at the scene, were there other folks? Were they alone? Were there other people? What kind of weapon did they use? And they might start to get into more and more and more specific questions. But kind of going back into those, those questions about the initial incident, the initial scene, in my experience, and I've handled any number of these cases over the years, in my experience, um, the initial responses were trying to figure out exactly who are all the players, 
Where do they all fit into the picture before they then sit down and really try to peel through everything? So that's where it's going to be important for you to give some information, to make sure that all the evidence has been pointed out. So as an example, if you are in your garage and there's a screwdriver on the floor, that's the screwdriver that the bad guy was charging you with, right? The officers may not recognize that that Phillips head on the floor was actually a weapon. They're just going to look like maybe any other screwdriver on the floor. So that's where you're going to need to point out, look, this was the, this was the knife, or pardon, this was the knife. I mean, it could yeah. function as a knife, but this was the weapon that was used to attack mm -hmm. me with. So don't assume that law enforcement's going to see everything. That is going to be important for you to say at least some things to point out the evidence because that's going to be vital later on. Yes, and, and you're absolutely right that police officers are coming to the scene without much information. We're, we're getting a call from dispatch that just says there has been a shooting. So um, cops are arriving with only that amount of information. And when officers get to the scene, they're going to be wanting to try to gather information. And um, we, as honest citizens, have kind of a, a, a dichotomy there. Where do we want to stand? We want to give enough information to help the investigation if the bad guy has run away, but we certainly don't want to give too much information that, it, that is going to put us in a bad light. We still have that right to remain silent, and, and um, there's still some things that we should probably not say right. until we speak to our attorney. And a lot of people, you know, a lot of people, I get it, you grew up in a nice area, your, your parents, your brother, they don't have a police record or an arrest record or conviction record a mile long. A lot of people really don't understand, why do we say that? Why do we say keep your mouth shut, right? The police are on our side, they're here to serve and protect. I get it, but trust me, uh, things are going to go sideways real, real, real fast. And you're going to wish that you kept your mouth shut. Quick example, I had a gentleman who was involved in an incident where no shots were fired, but basically someone pulled a gun on him and he pulled a gun back. And uh, he took off in his car while that happened. Um, and uh, my guy had zero arrest record, white collar professional, nice guy, family guy, no issues. He told and was as cooperative as possible with law enforcement, and he had to think about a six or seven hour police interrogation where they asked him the story over and over and over and over again. Now, if I asked you what to do for breakfast this morning, and now I ask you again, and now we play that same game for six hours, do you think you're going to say the exact same thing of what happened when you woke up? What time did you wake up at? What did you do next? Did you brush your teeth or did you use mouthwash first? Are you sure? Are you positive? Are you sure you're sure? Uh, and we go through your whole morning routine. We go through that however many times, 10, 20, 30, 40 times over the course of six hours. I assure you, you are going to introduce some variation. It's not a matter of you trying to be deceptive. It's not a matter of you being a bad person, a bad actor. But the police are going to be noting all the times that you've changed or modified your story. That can come back to haunt you later. Another case, and that's what happened in this case, was he gave a very consistent story, but with small nuances, particularly towards hours four, five, and six of the interrogation wore on. Um, another thing that happened to that story is that the bad guy called 911 too. And the bad guy told a whole different version of the story, but he only told it once. So the police are trying to figure out, all right, we got these two guys. One of them saying this happened, the other one's saying this happened, but this guy changed his story on us. That's the way it goes down, right? And if he just kept his mouth shut, totally different situation. I had another self-defense shooting case, this time where my client did fire gunshots. Uh, and again, super nice guy, no criminal record, family man, you name it. Um, he was just so amped up with the adrenaline and everything from being on the scene 
he actually misidentified the street he was on. He misidentified so many different things because his mind was going a million miles per second and he, he wasn't ready for this. There's a reason why, and Kevin, as a law enforcement officer, is, is, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, <laughs> yeah. but when law enforcement officers are involved in any kind of self-defense encounter, they're not pressed right away to give all the details, sit down and let's do it. Maybe some of the details, like yeah. what we discussed earlier, yeah. but by and large, it's take some time, 24, 48, 72 hours, talk to an attorney, and then we'll come in and we'll, we'll iron some things out. Yeah, right? that's exactly it. And, and for their part, agencies are starting to understand this, that yes, they want to get as much information as possible, but they understand um, sort of what happens psychologically to people when they're involved in a high-stress incident. So um, cops are getting better at that, but they're still, they still have a lot to do. They're still in a hurry. They still want to know everything right now. And you're right. As soon as you start changing your story, even a little bit, investigators, you know, well, what's this person trying to hide yeah. there? Um, I, I hate to say it, but cops, you know, people lie to cops all the time. Right. So they're getting a little bit cynical about it. So Yeah, I mean, I mean, we certainly can all understand that. But at the end of the day, look, identify some of the, that evidence. Survive your second encounter of the day. First one being with the bad guy. Second one being with police. Um, if you want to go into the details, I usually tell people that as soon as you feel like you're safe and as officers are pulling up, just slowly put the firearm down or better yet, as you hear the sirens and they're turning around the street, put the firearm down and move away. That way you don't get into that sort of situation like what yeah. Kevin mentioned before happened in North Carolina. Um, but don't go into too many details, all right? And I assure you speaking not only as a criminal defense attorney and former state prosecutor, and God forbid, uh, not as your future criminal defense attorney, but if I just filled into those shoes for just a moment in this imaginary world, I assure you, your future criminal defense attorney would be telling you, don't sit down and give a six-hour interview. It, it has literally, I don't think it's ever worked out for my client. Yeah. It always winds up, we're digging them out of, out of the hole that they're doing. And it's, they're good people. It's, it's, mm -hmm. These are not, you know, gangbangers slinging crack in downtown or something. These, these are good people, but it's... Um, you just got to be careful about this. And uh, digging them out of a hole probably leads us into the next question here. Jerry, he seems a little upset with us. Why did the USCCA promote on Facebook that modifying a handgun can get you in legal trouble, even though there is not one case of this ever successfully happening? Well, Jerry, um, one case successfully happening uh, might be a little bit different. We might not have case law or anything built on this, but once a prosecutor or somebody gets a hold of some information about you modifying your handgun, even if they don't use that to win, that's extra time that your defense attorney has to work on this. So, um, and uh, it, it says modifying your handgun, and there's lots of different things that I, I can I think could be done with this. You know, right. um, the, the the very first time I ever heard this was probably 15 years ago. I was in a Masada Ayub class, and somebody showed up with a 1911 pistol with the grip safety drilled and pinned down. So the grip <laughs> safety was always engaged, okay. and. Uh, Moss looked at the gun and he said, you are now reckless. You have recklessly disengaged a safety item on your firearm. How can I trust you in a court of law? You know, mm -hmm. um, so those are the sorts of things. What have you seen in that area and, and what do people look for? And what did you look for as a prosecutor? Well, some of the low hanging fruit here, let's start off, right? Some firearm, there are plenty and plenty and plenty of cases to the Jerry who asked that question of people who have been successfully prosecuted and convicted for modifying firearms. Uh, I've dealt with people who've done that. You know what it's called? Machine guns, short-barreled rifles, short-barreled shotguns, any other weapons, AOWs, basically turning things into unregistered NFA items. So, Jerry, I appreciate the fact that that's not what you were referencing, but just as a low-hanging fruit item, just keep in mind that you start modifying firearms, you start doing stuff like that, unless you're legally knowledgeable and informed about what you're doing, 
I've had people who probably in all, in all likelihood unintentionally did something. So as an example, you take a AR-15 pistol, you throw a vertical foregrip on it, that's in any other weapon now. Mm -hmm. You just committed a federal felony, my friend. So I'm not against modifying firearms, don't get me wrong. Although going back to what Kevin was saying, we got two things to keep in mind. There's always a sensibility check here. And what I mean by that is you start throwing punisher grips and decals and uh, you know, you're screwed. You're, if you see this, you're dead or something like that on, on a muzzle break or something. Yeah, that's not passing the sensibility test. And that firearm, if anything, should be a toy. But realistically, if you are involved in a self-defense shoot, there's a chance that while you're locked up or while you're busy explaining things to investigators, if you didn't heed our advice here, and you're explaining things to investigators that they may be running a search warrant on your house and grabbing on your firearms. They're gonna be looking at all these different things that say Punisher and, and Boondock Saints and all this other kind of stuff, which might be, depending on your viewpoint, fantastic art, fantastic storytelling, and lots of interesting and, and great morals sometimes that comes out of it, but it's also gonna give the prosecutor and law enforcement great fodder to go towards what was your state of mind at the incident? Mm -hmm. Were you somebody that was using lethal force as a last resort option to defend yourself? Were you out there just basically looking to shoot someone? And mm -hmm. just give me a reason, buddy, right? So number one, we get that kind of stuff. But the second thing then is, you know, let's say you want to modify the trigger or you want to modify some sort of slide or something like that. Um, look, law enforcement, in my experience, with a small percentage being an exception, maybe 10%, and, and you know, Kevin, correct me if, if I'm wrong again from your angle, but from my angle, somebody who works in and around you know, a larger city, uh, Milwaukee area, um, most law enforcement officers, they're not gun people. And I don't say that attacking them, it just is what it is. Now you see somebody with a SWAT tab, yeah, they joined, they, yeah. that's a gun person, yeah. they joined for the free ammo more than likely, right? Um, but for the vast majority of men and women in law enforcement who put on that badge every morning, um, this is something, it's another tool in their belt. It's something that they train with, something that they qualify with, they're not gonna be super into it. They see somebody with a bunch of modifications. They know that your Glock doesn't look like their Glock. What's going on with this guy? Yeah. Right? This is pretty strange. This is pretty weird. Um, it might be kind of a similar to if you see somebody who's modifying their car and putting a bunch of racing stripes or, or whatever it is, and you're naturally going to form some judgments about that person. Now, maybe you don't if you're super into, into cars and you, you understand and speak the language. But let's bring this back to firearms. Keep in mind that unless you understand all this stuff and unless that's gonna be your baseline, people are gonna look at you and they're gonna form opinions. And those may not be fair opinions, but going back to what Kevin mentioned earlier, that's gonna force me to be explaining what happened. And just like in politics as in the courtroom, if you're explaining, if you're defending, you're losing. We need to be spending our time and our resources and our resource in court generally comes down to time, all right? We need to be spending that as much as possible to be introducing our facts, our theories, to support our attack on the state's case so that they, don't, they do not meet their burden of proof. And I'm not just carte blanche, I'm not just totally across the board against gun modifications, all right? But you need to be aware of the fact that as soon as you start modifying firearms, at least beyond anything outside the mainstream, what I mean by that, it's very common for Glocks to have the New York uh, trigger modification, right? Mm -hmm. to, take, to take the trigger pull from five and a half to about eight pounds, right? That's a modification, but it's a very mainstream modification yeah. and one that law enforcement, and it's gonna be reasonably easy. Plus it's making the fire more difficult to fire. So that's a different modification. I think when we usually yeah. we're talking about modifications, we're talking about lightning triggers. We're talking about doing all that kind of stuff. Yeah. 
And now we're going to be introducing extra variables of the prosecutor, maybe those people in the jury who are not gun people, because I assure you, the last firearm jury trial I was in, you know, the prosecutor, maybe it wasn't her first question, but it was in her first three or four. You know what one of her first questions for the jury was? Who here is a member of the NRA? Who here is a member of, insert particular firearm group here? Who here owns guns? And they're going to do everything possible to get those folks off that jury. They're going to do everything possible to get anybody who understands and speaks your language, who speaks our language, off that jury. And if and when that happens, you're going to have a bunch of people out there who's going to look at you and they're going to think, yeah, this guy's some sort of psycho. He modified his firearm. Yeah, he, he kind of went crazy with it. And um, we'll kick back to something that you said in there that uh, if you're doing lots of modifications or you're changing up your gun a lot, you, you refer to it as a toy. And I'm not assuming that, you know, a toy that children are playing no, with no, or that you're putting right. in the toy box. But, um, you know, I... I don't use the word toy. I would call it like a race gun or something that you're going right. to take. You're right. going to take to the range and you're going to use in, in competitions or something like that. But specifically, not um, for self-defense. Range tool, not yeah. a self-defense tool. Yeah, and we're, you you mentioned it out there. A lot of people want a lighter trigger. They think that lighter trigger will make your gun more accurate. Well, you know, at at combat distances from you know three to five yards, um, whether you have a three pound trigger or a five pound trigger or an eight pound trigger, you're probably not going to be that much less accurate. But the three pound trigger is much more likely to make the gun fire right. um, when you just have your finger on it and, and you get a sympathetic muscle response or something or like that. Or double tap so, or yeah. who knows. So um, that's why we ask you, um, you know, don't, uh, we have a question up here. Why is getting a trigger job on a Glock, why is that considered a bad thing? Well, if you drop that trigger from the five and a half pound traditional pull to three pounds, and some people are even going less, um, yep, that's going to give you a really nice tight group at 25 yards when you're shooting slow fire on the range. But it, uh, um, you're going to come back to trigger reset and probably under, under stress fire another shot unintentionally, and, and that's going to cause you some more problems. Yeah, so. I mean, folks, I, I've talked to... A, a number of people over the years, real people like, like you and me, um, who have been in these sorts of situations, who have been in these life or death situations where they've actually had to pull out their firearm in self-defense. This isn't going to the range on a Sunday afternoon. This isn't that at all. It may be raining out. Have you ever tried that three-pound trigger with, with wet, slick hands on your Glock or on whatever it is? Um, have you ever had that level of stress, that level of adrenaline, um, the lack of the fine motor skills? I'm not trying to dump on you if that's the choice you want to make. What I'm telling you is this, two things. Number one, law enforcement, the prosecutors are going to be looking at that and they're going to be looking at it as an advantage and that's going to force your defense attorney, for better or worse, to have to defend it. Number two, you are introducing extra variables which may not help you. Again, maybe you accidentally do double tap with that light trigger. Maybe you accidentally pull the trigger when you didn't intend to. I know oftentimes, although technology has certainly come a long way, but oftentimes lightening the trigger pull and lightening the springs can actually also harm the reliability of a firearm as well. Um, some of those parts, they're just lighter, they're finer, they can break more easily. Again, I appreciate the fact that there's a lot of fantastic trigger kits and drop-in kits uh, that have addressed a lot of those issues. But I think what, what we're all saying is just be careful and keep in mind that um, what's great for the range may not be great for your back pocket or for your inside waistband. Those are, those are two very, very, very different things. Yeah, and we legitimately do not want to give prosecutors or investigators or anybody else any extra ammunition to use against us when we're trying to defend ourselves after a deadly force incident. So right. let's move on. What happens? Uh, oh, no. There we go. Greg wants to know, would I be arrested at the scene of a self-defense shooting and who determines that? 
Well, Greg, I can most certainly tell you that you will be detained. I don't know if there will be a custodial arrest at the scene, but you will certainly be detained until I or anybody else who looks like me um, wearing a badge um, is determined that everything is safe and, and now we can let you go and uh, you're not going to attack anyone. So um, the arrest at the scene, you know, we're going to look at the evidence and we're going to see what's laying around there and see if, if the initial story or the initial evidence that we see adds up to a self-defense shooting. Um, what would you have to say on, on that? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I've had clients who get arrested uh, at the scene, uh, even though they're, they're later exonerated of all charges, whether they're dropped, whether they're dismissed at the end of a prolonged jury trial. Uh, I've had clients who do not get arrested, and uh, maybe they get arrested the next day. <laughs> mm -hmm. The officers say, yep, you can go home. I think everything's fine. And for whatever reason, they run it through a supervisor, through a prosecutor, something like that. Uh, another quick war story, because we've gotten feedbacks on these AMAs. <laughs> And I know people love my war stories. So I apologize if looking down the lens, you do not like the war stories. But I know at least some of you do. Uh, I had a client uh, within the last few years who was involved in a self-defense shoot. And he calls me uh, 8 AM on Monday morning. Um, and there, you'd never get a good call 8 AM Monday morning as a criminal defense attorney. That's somebody who is sitting by the phone, ready to dial it the second it turns 8 AM. And he explains what happens, and you know he's involved in a self-defense shoot. But you know he talked to the officers. Everybody's really nice at the scene. Everybody's like, "Yeah, you totally did the right thing." On and on and on. They even let him keep his firearm. All right. They said, "Go home. You're totally fine. We've got some paperwork to push. You'll be fine." All right. So that happened on Sunday. It's now Monday morning, and uh, he says, "Well, you know, I, I I don't think I need an attorney." Um, I love hearing that all the time. <laughs> I don't think I need an attorney, but I'm just calling you just because, right? And uh, it's like, all right, all right. I, I appreciate that. Nobody likes talking to a criminal defense attorney. It's, it's any, any attorney it for that matter. Makes you feel like a criminal. It's an inherently unholy act to, t to call an attorney's office. I get it, all right? Um, but, you know, I, I figured, you know, this has been a big incident. I should give you a call. I should give someone a call. Um, but, you know, and he explains what happened. He says, I think I'm all right. And I... I can't remember his name right now. I'm going to call him Tim, not real name. Uh, and I said, Tim, you know, here's what's going to happen. You're going to get a call at some point, most likely today, maybe tomorrow, but most likely today and probably before noon, saying, hey, we've got a few questions that we need you to come back in. It's just going to be really easy. Come on into the station. You know, we'll sit down with some coffee. And I just need you to just clear a few things up for us. And when you get that call, there only after one thing, you. That's it. That's it. Nothing else. They're not after the bad guy. They already got all the information from what he told me he told them. There's nothing that you can add about that. They're looking at you. And if you don't want to believe me, that's fine. But I want you to do one thing. When you get that call, be polite, be respectful. Say, let me talk to my attorney. I'll get back to you. End the phone call. Don't let him keep you on the line. End the phone call. But again, be polite, be respectful. Give me a call back. We'll skip the I told you so's and we'll talk about the next steps. And he's, it was very, ni very nice, very polite, and he insisted that's not going to happen. Uh, he called me by 10.30. He said, yeah, uh, I just got off the phone with them, and they, they said that they want me to come in today at about 1 or 2 just to answer a few <laughs> questions. And I said, all right, uh, you're not going in there today. 
I will call them for you, but in all honesty, they may have to hear that straight from you. This isn't the movies. I can't bust into the, the police station with my styrofoam coffee cup and my brown briefcase, slap it down on the table, and tell the officers to scram. That's how I become a co-defendant, all right? It doesn't work like that. At the end of the day, remember, you're the only ones that can raise your rights. I can't do it for you. I can tell them this. I can fax over all this and that. That's not the same. You've got to be the one to do it. So I can call them and coordinate this, but at the end of the day, they may still have to hear it from you. But you need to come into the office, and we need to do it now, because they could arrest you if they have probable cause to do so. Um, and we need to go and talk about some stuff. And he's like, well, I don't think I really need to. I've got work today. You know, I'm calling you from the office on my break. You know, I, I don't know if I can commit that much. And I started explaining all the different felonies and penalties of what a prosecutor, having been a former state prosecutor, of based upon the facts, how, what they could spin this to. And he's like, all right, I'll be in in about 20 minutes. Um, yeah. And Suddenly that's what happened. Suddenly the priority comes Suddenly right the priorities yeah. change. Yeah. So if, you, if you're talking to the right criminal defense attorney, um, don't fight them. Like, we wasted some time. And he wasn't fighting me. He just needed to be talked through it. But... Keep in mind, the detective could have been on their way to his, to his work, to his house, to arrest him at that point in time. I haven't had a chance to tell him how do you raise your rights, which actually I already talked through at that point, but I wasn't convinced that I drilled it in. Mm -hmm. um, so you just got to roll with it and follow what your, what your attorney's telling you. Yep, absolutely. So uh, next question up, um, what happens to your weapon if you defend yourself? Does it get destroyed? Um, typically, it does not get destroyed. It does get held for evidence, though. So how long can they keep their gun? Keep your gun. Keep, keep your gun, your, your precious it becomes little Betty. Yeah. Right, yeah. Uh, it depends. If they're charging you with the case, it'll definitely be held as evidence during the pendency of the case. If the case, regardless of the outcome, is being appealed, it could be generally, according to most state laws, check your local listings for laws, but generally speaking, it could be held during the pendency of the appeal in case you have to go back and they have to do the whole thing over again. Uh, in the event that there are no charges and or the charges are dismissed, there's often timelines that you may have to file various paperwork with the local courts in order to get your firearm back. I had to say, folks, my experience, cops will not always, but very often play games with you. Super quick war story again. <laughs> Sorry, Kev. Uh, I, I feel bad. Uh, no, super, super, super quick war story again is we got a gentleman's case dismissed, firearm case dismissed, and in Wisconsin, the rule here is 30 days following the, the date of the dismissal. And uh, it wasn't my, my case. We've got the largest firm in the state of Wisconsin that handles criminal cases, uh, largest criminal defense firm. Uh, it was another attorney at the firm. But he and I were talking about it in my office, and uh, I said, all right, did, did you guys file the paperwork yet? And he said, yeah, I wanted to, but Klein said he doesn't want me to file the paperwork back because the officer said he can just stop down in a week or two and pick it up. And I said, did you tell your client about the fact that there's a very finite amount of time that we have in order to file the paperwork? He's like, yep, yep, gave him all that warning, did it in, in email, everything's fine. I'm like, all right, your guy's going to get screwed. He's like, I know that, and I told him that, but he needs to, he needs to learn. So uh, a couple weeks go by, he shows up at the, at the police department to pick it up, and they said, oh, you know, the evidence uh, sergeant or whatever it is isn't here. you got to come back. Uh, he's on vacation this week. Come back next week. Comes back next week. Evidence guy's there. Oh, you know, I, I need this particular form. Ugh, I'm all out of copies today. Can you come back tomorrow? Comes back, can't tomorrow. Comes back two days later. Oh, shoot, you know, can you do this? And they basically just have him doing all this until finally it was day 29. It was a Friday afternoon at 3 o'clock, and he calls us, and he says, yeah, so I've been to the police department four or five times. They're not giving me the gun back, and I realize that tomorrow is day 30. What should I do? And we said, that's it. You're out of time. Yeah. They got, they got your gun. They beat yeah. you is what it is. 
Um, and I'm not saying that to attack men and women in law enforcement, but just keep in mind that these are real stories and this is what happens, which is all the more reason to listen to your attorney. If he had just listened to us, we weren't billing him anything extra for us to file this. Mm -hmm. This wasn't a money thing. They just, they just got him is what it is. Listen to your attorney. Yeah, and, uh, and do everything you know on schedule, but right. always you're, you're going to need a lawyer to help you probably get that right. gun back. One of the things I tell people is your backup gun should just be the, uh, um, the exact same gun that you typically carry um, so that you know if your gun gets taken as evidence and you are allowed to carry another gun, typically if you're charged, they might tell you, no, you don't get to possess firearms or anything. Yes, you know, very as, typical as a bail condition. Yeah, as part of your, your bail conditions. But um, uh, if, you, if you are allowed to carry a gun, you should probably have one that fits in your holster. And I've and, and seen police departments also play games. I've seen them give firearms back, but everything is disassembled. And when I mean disassembled, folks, I mean every, every single piece has been taken apart. Not broken, just totally disassembled. Um, I've, had, I've had seen police departments, there's one particular case where they actually spray painted the firearm pink, allegedly for weapons. This was about uh, 10 years ago, 15, 12, 12 years ago now. Um, and they got sued for it, and the police department lost. Yeah, but, I can imagine. But right, it was, yeah. these but things happen. Is, your gun is still spray-painted. Yeah, so. you have a pink gun. Yeah. Now. So, yeah. does the type of ammo I have in my weapon uh, cause more scrutiny after a self-defense incident, or is that just a myth, such as the RIP rounds? Well, I can tell you, in a place like New Jersey, yes, you will be scrutinized about your ammo, because in New Jersey, only full metal jacket ammo is allowed, if you can get a firearms permit at all. So, um... My suggestion has always been to find out what your local police agency uses as defensive ammo and uh, use that same type of ammo. But what have you seen um, or, or heard in the area out there? Well, so. number one, exactly what Kevin just said, you need to make sure that whatever you're carrying is legal. Let's just start there. All right. Mm -hmm. And keep in mind, sometimes in states, going back to New Jersey, what might be legal in the home might be illegal on the street. Those can be two different things sometimes. So just keep in mind that there's just, is this lawful to use, not only in this jurisdiction, but in this particular place versus that particular place. Number two, here's the game that I've seen in court. You've got hollow points. Those are cop killer bullets. That's the way that the prosecutor will call it in court. You have full metal jackets. That's military grade. All right. That's, <laughs> that's. This is yeah, this military is real. style. I have home. been yeah. in court when when this has happened. Those weren't my cases. I was just sitting there waiting for something else. But this is the game that that you know it's one or the other. Option A or B. The prosecutor is going to have figuratively every chamber loaded for you. Um, I go back to exactly what Kevin said. Uh, use what local law enforcement is using. It at least gives you that punchy comeback of well, I'm using to protect my life and the life of my family. The yeah. same thing that officer is using right over there, gesturing at the bailiff in court. Mm -hmm. And again, whether or not the the attorney wins wins in this situation, it just causes more time and more effort for your defense attorney to overcome the objections that somebody is going to arise or the questions that that are going to be brought up. So, um, that it's very important. Here's a good one from Vaughn. If, a, if I'm in a business and it's being robbed at gunpoint, and what is the proper action if a clear shot is possible and you fear that the person at your register will be shot or seriously injured? Well, it sounds to me, Vaughn, like you covered all of the bases right there. So take that shot. Okay. Are we facing an imminent deadly threat to you or another person? Seems like it. Somebody's pointing a gun at the person at the register. Um, do you have target identification, target acquisition, and target isolation? Says you did. You have a clear shot. Should you do that? Well, now it comes to a personal decision. Uh, can you live with doing that or can you live with not doing that? So um, from what you said, legally, 
all the bases were covered on that question. You would see that as a legal and justifiable shooting, wouldn't you? It doesn't, the prosecutor yeah. may not. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, again, I hate to say it, but um, what I usually tell clients, what I usually tell folks is there's nothing to stop law enforcement to show up right here in the studio where we're filming this right now and arresting both Kevin and I for murdering a million people in Appleton, Wisconsin, there aren't a million people in Appleton, Wisconsin, but just the same, yeah. for murdering a million people in Appleton, Wisconsin five minutes ago, right? There's nothing to stop prosecutors from filing those charges either. So I'm less focused on what can happen, I'm more focused on what the likely outcomes of something will be. And that's something where, without knowing more information at least, mm -hmm. I'm feeling pretty confident about our ability to have a successful resolution. Yeah, and, and I can't tell you, nor can anyone tell you, yes, take that shot. Because if you do take that shot, you're putting yourself in some sort of legal jeopardy at the time. Um, and it might not be criminal, it might be civil. All of these other things that happen following the shot, after the incident is over, you still have to deal with those. So if you just decide to keep your gun in the holster and be a good witness and the robber shoots the person behind the counter, you can't be charged for not stepping in. You certainly, you're not going to be arrested for not helping out, but can you live with that? You know, now the rest of your life you're thinking, maybe I could have saved that person's life. Or if you shoot the bad guy, now the rest of your life thinking, did I really have to shoot the bad guy and kill the bad guy and go through all of the legal stuff that's going on there? So these are the kinds of personal decisions you need to make before you have to pull out your gun. You need to think this stuff through long before you have to pull out your gun. Yeah, that legal stuff, that, that's, that's a lot of stuff. That's a mm -hmm. big ride. Uh, and, uh, you know, that obviously can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. You're looking at decades in prison. So, and that's not to mention the fact that every Every shred of your life is going to be paraded in front of, you know, the court of the media. Uh, you know, that, that girlfriend that you had in high school who, or that boyfriend you had in high school who, uh, you know, had some sort of story about you? Yeah, maybe someone's going to stick a microphone in front of that person. They're going to, they're going to want to hear about it. So um, just keep in mind, there's a lot that goes into this. Yeah. So uh, we got another question here from Chuck. He says, I was trained to keep firing at your adversary until you drain your magazine. That was his military training. How well is that training hold up in today's courtroom? My training was in excess of 50 years ago, and I have never seen this question addressed. Um, well, you've, you've probably seen the answer to this question, Chuck, and you must use objectively reasonable force, and as soon as the threat stops, you must stop using any force at all. And if you, if you keep shooting after the threat has stopped, now you are committing a crime. So. Um, and, and you're out of bullets. I mean, <laughs> I'm looking at this thinking, keep shooting until you drain your magazine. Um, I, I don't see that as an effective military strategy. Um, we want to conserve ammo because you never know when there's going to be another bad guy. But um, I also don't have a fire team backing me right, up yeah. while I'm reloading or if I'm out of ammo. So yeah. that's, that's the other thing to keep in mind. You know, there, there's no air, there's no air strikes. There's no, yep. you probably don't have a medic standing next to you and, and all that kind of stuff. We're not calling in artillery so just we're to not suppress artillery, the fire. Right, we're not firing so. for effect at 30th and, and Madison, <laughs> you know, in downtown. So, um, right, I mean, we're joking about it. But there's very real, both legal as well as safety ramifications, legal being exactly what Kevin said. Uh, if you're firing, once the threat's stopped, you're still firing. Uh, courts are going to call that homicide, or at least there's a very good chance that they're going to call it homicide. That's number one. Number two is how do you know that their th his three friends aren't around the corner and they're going to come out with knives, baseball bats, or maybe their own firearms, and now you've got an empty magazine. So those are two 
easy, low-hanging fruit, big issues to think about right there. So uh, I agree 100% with what Kevin said. I would not advise anybody to do that. Yeah, it's not just an automatic mag dump when you're facing a, a right. deadly threat. You need, to, you need to think your way through all of this because uh, truly self-defense is a thinking person's game. You need to make sure that, you, as you say, survive the first encounter and then you have others encounters that you need to survive after that. So um, keep that in mind. If I make a 911 call to report an incident, what should I say? What questions should I answer and not answer? I'll let you go ahead on this one. Sure. Well, you know, as I've heard Kevin say before, you know, the dispatchers are trained to get as much information and to keep you talking, all right? Um, there's all sorts of different schools of thought about this of, I'm going to say only, you know, there's been shots fired. I'm at such and such a location. I'm dressed like this. Some people even say, don't do that. Some people then say, hang up. Other people say, stay on the line, keep it, keep it with you so you can update them about what's going on. Other people say, keep it open, but, keep your, but put your phone down. Um, I guess I'm not a true believer. I'm not, I'm not saying that this one is the only path to go. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. um, I think that depending upon the situation and the context, you could have multiple correct options or maybe one correct option in this scenario, but a different correct option in the next one. As an example, if you feel totally safe, which I don't understand how you could after you've been through something like this, um, but if you feel totally safe, the bad guy's not coming back or they're no longer a threat to you, there's no other bad guys, uh, then obviously you keeping a phone up to your ear is a very different situation as compared to you putting it down so you can maintain both, both hands on your firearm uh, to, in order to protect yourself, the, the lives of your loved ones, and so on. So I don't have a problem with that. I guess the one thing that I would say is I would not go into tons of information in detail like what you've heard us already talk about here today. Mm -hmm. There's no reason why you need to be pouring through, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. I assure you it's going to come back and haunt you. Yeah, I would encourage people not to blurt out an admission of guilt or, or anything like that while they're on the phone because you're on the phone with the dispatcher and the dispatchers are trained to continue asking questions to get as much information as possible and everything you're saying is being recorded. This morning, after my car accident, I called the dispatcher <laughs> and the dispatcher <coughs> knew my phone number from my cell phone. Oh, hi, Kevin. And then she went <laughs> right into and, and she did everything she was supposed to do to make sure she got all the information, my direction of travel and everything. She just went right into basically emergency mode that I'm calling in. She happened to know who, who I was. And, uh, and, and I started answering those questions. And that's exactly what's going to happen. You're not going to get the old, hi, John, how you doing? But that dispatcher is going to be seeking as much information as possible to give to the responding officers to help keep them safe. So you have to be thoughtful in how you're talking to them. So you dispatcher. responded, of course. Yeah. The deer came at me. I downshifted and accelerated. Right for me. I yelled yep. him, get out of the way, get yep. out of the way. I even honked. He wouldn't do it. Yep. And, and uh, yeah, and now we got some venison. Yeah, in the I, be I believe it was you know suicide by cop. It suicide was by deer cop. just jumped right out. Suicide in, by Ford in front of me. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, th those dispatchers are trained to continue to ask questions and to keep you on the line as long as possible. If and and as Tom said, you might need to defend yourself again. Uh, uh, the, another threat may occur, so we want to make sure that that one you are safe. You survive the initial encounter, and then. You help in the investigation as much as you can, but you're also helping in your own defense when you're when you're keeping quiet. So, um, how would you get off the phone with the operator after dialing 911? Well, <laughs> you can push the hang up button. Um, there are some cell phones out there that won't let you hang up on 911, so just set the phone down um, or, or or put it out there. But again. Um, you know, be polite and, and tell them, I mean, they already know that you need help. They're going to be sending the cavalry your direction. 
but just say, I can't keep talking right now. I have to deal with this and, uh, and uh, deal with whatever else is going on out there. Keep in mind that whatever you're saying to them, you are creating evidence. You know, there's three encounters you're gonna have to survive, right? Maybe four, arguably, depending upon your religious disposition. But you've got the initial violent encounter, You've got the encounter with law enforcement. Once they arrive, you've got to survive those two. Then you have the legal encounter. And if you're religious or, or anything like that, you then may have kind of this spiritual long-term judging encounter as well. So mm -hmm. that's the way I look at it, uh, is you've got three or maybe four encounters to survive. And you need to make sure that you learn everything possible. You train as best as you can in order to get through all three or four of those encounters. Absolutely. Next question up is, uh, if I've used deadly force, should I approach the individual I just shot, even though they haven't moved a muscle after being shot? Um, I always fall on the category of no. You as a private citizen should not be making any approach to somebody who is such a dangerous threat that you now had to shoot them to stop them from harming you. Once they're falling down on the ground or staggering away or whatever it is they're doing, you need to call 911 and make sure help is on the way to you. Um, you know, there's tons of questions that revolve around this. What level of training do you have? You're not morally obligated to go and save, attempt to save the life of somebody who just tried to kill you. Um, could you be doing more harm than good? Could you be walking into an ambush? There's so many things going on around there that no, I don't want you to approach that person. Tom? Yeah, I mean, there's nothing else to add. I mean, a quick war story. I've prosecuted it and defended and been involved with any number of robberies, violent encounters, home invasions, burglaries, you name it. With very few exceptions, it's usually multiple bad guys. Now, you may not see them all, right? The one person or two people go into the home, one might be in your bathroom, the other one's still at the front door, the third guy's at the car to keeping it running and kind of being on lookout, so to speak. So, uh, but don't assume that just because you've dealt with the immediate threat in front of you, that the danger is gone. Those are two very different things. Absolutely. So next question up, Dave G, he wants to talk right to you, Tom. Uh-oh. Discussing the topic of our right to remain silent, can you please touch on this subject again? Sure. So, yeah, and I'll let you take this one from <laughs> top right. to bottom. All right, Dave. So let's start with one important thing right off the top, all right? You have your right to remain silent. You have your right to an attorney. Those are two very different things, and you know what? I am a true believer in one of those. One of those is way better than the other one. You know which one it is? Pause for dramatic effect. Your right to an attorney, way better than your right to remain silent. Why? It changes the rules of engagement, and also under very limited circumstances, the United States Supreme Court have ruled in the last five or six years that actually officers can use that silence against you, contrary to what you may hear in the Miranda warnings. I won't go into the details as to how and when. Suffice to say, though, that's not an airtight wall that you've got there. All right. If you raise your right to remain silent, police can still engage with you. They can still badger you, they can still hassle you, they can still effectively play their games and try to manipulate you. If you raise your right to an attorney, theoretically, they're supposed to be disengaging, all right? Um, very different right to be raised, much superior right to be raised. How do you raise either one of these? Well, number one, I always say do it polite, be respectful, all right? You're not winning any friends, either with law enforcement or either with the jurors down the line, should push come to shove, the judge and so forth, by being a jerk, all right? Don't be a jerk. That's my legal advice, all right? Hopefully they're flashing it up on the bottom somewhere. Don't be a jerk, all right? <laughs> Big red letters. Big uh, red letters, bold <laughs> underline. You know what, it's just juries don't like letting jerks off. Like, they don't, all right? So don't, don't be a and, jerk. And police officers put that in our report. Oh we yeah. Put, oh. Whether it's cooperative or, you know. You better believe they do. You better believe they do. It goes right in All right, that goes in there. <laughs> 
And they write their reports very differently, uh, very different tone and style as to whether or not they like this person versus if they don't like. I mean, you can tell when they're just piling on and they're just <laughs> throwing in everything. I think they just go out to a bar afterwards sometimes. They're like, all right, this guy was a jerk to us. What do we got? Let's just go around. You know, who, who, what, what, what can we do to, to throw in there? Probably not at a bar. I've never seen the inside no. of one. Um, no, no, so, never, uh, never I, a, a I, bar, I tavern, like. or pub. But we have a, we have a term for that, and it, it cannot be uttered on, on okay. broadcast television. So I'm sure they're um, they're sitting around the station drinking some coffee or seltzer water uh, and discussing. Yeah. You know, but um, you just don't be a jerk. How do you raise your it, how do you raise your rights? If you're raising your rights to remain silent, you just say, look, I'd like to raise my rights to remain silent, or I'm not going to answer any of their questions. How do you raise your rights to an attorney? And the nice thing about this is it's very distinctive and clear that you are invoking your rights. It's not a question of I'm not choosing to answer that question. As I said before, of I'm just not going to answer any other questions, or I'd like to raise my rights to remain silent. No, you're being clear. You're not going to raise, you're not going to answer any other questions when you say, you know what, I'd love to cooperate. I'm going to cooperate, but I need to talk to my lawyer before I answer any further questions. It doesn't have to be that complicated or elaborate. You basically just need to make it clear of, look, I want my lawyer. I'm not going to answer any other questions without speaking to a lawyer. Be polite. Be respectful. You will be judged for it later. And as a result of your tone in that question, I guarantee you that jurors and judges and so forth are going to be reading your tone from that answer and that question that you gave back across whatever it is that happened. All right. Um, they're going to be taking that and they're going to be imputing it against you down the line. So um, be nice. Don't and, be a jerk. And that follows into the add-on question. When do you do this? At what point? Do you wait till you get to the police station? Do you do it immediately when you're you know, in handcuffs uh, so standing there waiting let's cover, to be released? Let's cover another myth, all right? Because this is one that I get all the time from folks, whenever, when I, whether I'm just running into them at whatever function it is and they somehow figure out that I'm a, I'm a criminal defense attorney and so forth. But... I face this a lot with, with clients. They'll say, yeah, you know, but I'm okay because they didn't read me my Miranda until way down the <laughs> line, right? They didn't read me, read me my rights, which means everything gets dismissed, right? No. Miranda, or sometimes more commonly known in court, is Miranda hyphen good child, right? Those are your rights that go into whether or not defendant's statements are going to be admissible in court, all right? That's a hyper, hyper, hyper technical process. We don't have enough time to break it down today. The gist to it goes something like this. There's a lot of exceptions that officers can use to get your statements into court. If you just start speaking, that's called a spontaneous utterance, all right, or an excited utterance, yep. all right? Um, even if you raise your rights, if you just start talking on your own will, bam, it's, it's probably going to come in. Were you not in custody? Were you free to go? They may not have to Mirandize you at all then, regardless of whatever the conversations, uh, whatever the line's going down. And it can be oftentimes very difficult to tell whether or not you're in custody. I've, there are court cases out there where somebody's been handcuffed in the back of the squad car. And yeah, they might be detained. If you caught, if you were listening about 15, 20 minutes ago, you heard Kevin say detained. You may be de detained, but you may not be in custody for the purposes of whether or not law enforcement need to read you the rights before they ask you any other questions. Maybe you're in the back of the squad car as the prosecutor will argue in court for officer safety. All right? I'm putting in air quotes. It's a very serious thing. Don't get me wrong. But... Uh, I, sometimes I, I wonder whether or not even the prosecutors believe that at times. Um, but you just you're had starting to, to hurt my feelings. I, no, no, <laughs> you're, you're, you're the handsome guy here. I'm just trying to do my part, all right? Um, but, uh, but look, that's how you raise your rights. Be really careful about it. This is not as easy as you saw it 
on whatever Perry Mason show you saw. This is a hyper-technical process. There's a million exceptions. Most attorneys, even criminal defense attorneys and prosecutors, don't know all the exceptions. I certainly don't expect somebody on the street, even if they are an attorney and officer, to know all the exceptions. Bottom line, if you have to give those initial details like we talked about before of here's the evidence, this person attacked me, um, spot out, point out, you know, yeah, there's the knife on the floor, the box cutter on the floor, used it with. Great, point those sorts of things out and shut it down. The safe answer for me to give you is to shut it down as early as possible. That's the safe answer, right? All right, and we want them to do the safe thing. We right. want them to do the right thing. And this uh, rolls right into that question. This guy, uh, he didn't leave his name on the question because his wife is going to kill him. Um, if I'm involved in a shooting, the police arrive, and I state I want to consult with my attorney, but my traumatized wife starts rambling on, can this be used against me? So um, I, I think that his wife is probably speaking clearly and articulately, not just rambling. Very clearly yeah. articulately. My wife speaks to me clearly articulately all the time. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> uh, yeah, long story short is it can absolutely be used against you. Uh, mm -hmm. Same thing if I see this a lot where a kid gets arrested, I mean a kid, a 20-year-old and a teenager gets arrested for whatever it is, and uh, mom or dad show up at the police station and they just launch into everything that they know and every, my, you know, whatever. Yeah, the officer can possibly use all that against you. I can't say definitely because there's a lot of very specific evidentiary issues that are in play that make every case unique. But generally speaking, yeah, if they're rambling or even if they're not rambling, if they are clearly and, and, and articulately and persuasively and intelligently and independently yeah. uh, addressing the officers and law enforcement, yeah, that can all be used against and, you. And one of the uh, references that I use to people all the time for not traveling to New Jersey is, is the New Jersey case. Um, uh, Florida man driving up uh, the turnpike in New Jersey gets pulled over because his license plate is tagged with his, his concealed carry status in Florida. They link the two together. New Jersey state troopers pull him over. Trooper number one talking to the husband at the back of the vehicle. Trooper number two walks to the window and just simply says to the wife, where does your husband keep his gun? And she says, I don't know, usually in the console next to, you know, here. Right. That prompted a search of the entire vehicle, yep. um, you know, just based on something that simple. So, yeah. Yeah. So I've heard many different things about what you should say or shouldn't say to responding officers. I think we've uh, gone over this quite a little bit. Uh, <laughs> um, can we clarify it now? Um, we want you to help with the investigation, but not incriminate yourself. So uh, I'll, if, if Tom wants to continue going, um, that's probably it. There's a former U.S. Supreme Court justice about a little over 100 years ago now who famously said, and this is me close, not exactly right, the greenest attorney, no matter how new, should be able to tell their client one thing, never talk to, to the police, all right? Um, I'm not saying never. Because again, you have to be able to point out the fact that that box cutter on the floor of your garage, that was evidence, that was the weapon, and you need law enforcement to collect that information and to process it for fingerprints or to do whatever it is that they're gonna do. Um, but generally speaking, to go as safe and conservative as possible is rarely the wrong advice I can give someone. The truth is that things may vary from time to time, but are you gonna be able to recognize all those times? is whether or not, yeah, this is the time I'm gonna talk, but I'm only gonna talk up to this point. But because this happened, that point changes to this point. Probably not. And I'm not saying that to attack you. I'm telling you that because it's gonna be inevitably, the statistics tell us it's gonna be late at night, it's gonna be a traumatic encounter, you're gonna be exhausted, you might be hungry, your blood sugar levels could be low. You are not gonna be in the right 
frame of mind to be making hyper-technical, nuanced, and ultra-important life-changing decisions. You can always have a follow-up interview later, and I assure you law enforcement will be more than happy to sit down with you later, at least in my experience. Yeah. Um, but you can't take comments back. So when in doubt, shut her down, raise your right to an attorney, ask for your lawyer, and you can always come back and add to it later. Outstanding. So uh, we can tell that people are watching because we got a whole uh, bivy of questions about good child. Ooh, uh, word yeah, of the day, yeah, yeah, word of the day, all right. Of questions about the good child rights. Everybody knows Miranda versus Arizona, so uh, what, what's the good child case? Uh, like I said, generally speaking, what we're talking about here is we're going into how are all, and you can, you can Google the, the technical nuances and all this, um, how we address this in court is we call these Miranda good child hearings, all right? I'm gonna go into a little bit of detail but we gotta keep, we gotta keep the show, the show must yeah. go on, right? Keep moving. Um, so we call these Miranda Goodchild hearings and it's to determine whether or not a defendant's statement is admissible in court. So we go whether or not a reasonable person would have believed that they were in custody, whether or not they were free to go. Um, we look at the overall circumstances to determine whether or not these rights were read, whether or not they were read properly in a timely fashion and on and on and on. And that whole package, the whole process is just referred to, at least in my state of Wisconsin, as the Miranda Goodchild process, even though we only call them the Miranda rights. So um, excellent question, specific question, Google it, you'll find it really fast. Outstanding. Um, we're looking at here, uh, would you put your gun on the ground and put your foot on it to keep some guarantee of possession, or would you reholster the guns when you heard the sirens after a self-defense shooting? Um, you know, I don't know about putting your foot on your gun. Um, th that that could uh, um, be a little bit unsafe or, or damage your weapon or something like that. Um, reholstering, it's going to be up to you. What I want when I arrive is nobody with a gun in their hands because if the gun is not in your hand, you can't shoot me. And that's rule number one is Kevin goes home with the same number of holes that he arrived at the scene with. So um, I, I want a gun not in anyone's hands when I get to the scene, and, I, and that's the first thing I'm going to be looking for. Where you put it, I really don't care as long as I can see the palms of your hands and we're doing well. So, I'm not a law enforcement officer. My suggestion is usually put it on the ground. Uh, and the reason being is because it's a lot safer for you to be told to walk away, assuming you're still next to it when law enforcement are giving you the commands, as opposed to are you going to try to unholster it now? Uh, for those of you who tuned in and missed earlier, Kevin told a story uh, about how a North Carolina officer was telling somebody to drop the gun when it sounded like it was holstered. Yeah, and well, so he's hidden in a pocket. Hidden in a pocket. So yeah. he, he reaches for it, following the officer's commands, and the officer winds up, winds up shooting him. Mm -hmm. um, to avoid those kind of things, I would say, for me, I would say put it on the ground. I'm not worried about maintaining possession, right? We have to survive the encounter. And if law enforcement's at the scene, I'm not saying that there's a 0% chance that the bad guy comes back to life reanimated and starts shooting at you, or maybe his buddy goes out in some sort of desperate blaze of glory. Realistically, neither of those are going to happen. Realistically, your biggest threat is going to be to survive the encounter with law enforcement. And I'm not saying that one bit to disparage the men and women in uniform. I'm just saying that as a reflection of reality that, as you've heard us say before, they're amped up, they don't know what's going on, and they're going home to their kids at the end of the day. Yeah, it's a very confusing time when you're right. showing up to something like that. So it right. uh, looks like we're getting close to the end, but we have one really good question from James C. Is it a good idea to establish a relationship with an attorney in advance? And does the USCCA have contact information for local attorneys? I'll answer the second part of that. Yes, we have all sorts of local attorneys on our list of, of good guys that you can call. And how important is it for you to, for 
you to know the person who's, you know, the phone rings and, it, and it's, yep, we've talked before, we, we kind of know. So that. keep in mind that you probably want the best criminal defense attorney that you can find. That person's not going to be the person who's going to have time to chit-chat ch with somebody who's not a client, not a prospective client on the phone. They probably have a million other things going on. That is not attacking you. That is not attacking them. It is a statement of reality, all right? This isn't the movies. This isn't, uh, what is it, A uh, Few Good Men, the Tom mm -hmm. Cruise movie, yeah. where they've yeah. got like four attorneys or three attorneys working on these Marines case. And it seems like that's their only case. They've got nothing else going on in life, nothing else. Like, that is not real life. The most successful criminal defense attorneys, the ones that you want working on your case, are going to have dozens and dozens and dozens of other clients' cases. Maybe there's other attorneys in the office that they routinely are helping out, supervising, mentoring, you name it. Um, I'm, I'm always happy to chat with people, but time is probably our most precious and limited commodity. Uh, sometimes I have people who call in and they, they want to talk for an hour or something, and it's mm -hmm. like, I, look, I, I'd love to, but yeah. I can't. I can't. So um, if you want to reach out, but don't be turned off if they don't sit there and yuck it up with you. And keep in mind that if somebody does have a lot of time to talk with you, uh, that may not be the cases. attorney that you want. Yep. All right? and, and I have always recommended to people, pay the hourly rate and go in and meet this attorney. This is a job interview for both of you, basically. Right, right. Um, for one hour, pay the rate and go in there and talk with the attorney and find out, ask some of the questions that you're normally asking us here for your regular attorney. So um, we want to make sure that you're getting the best possible defense that's if something does happen. So right. yes, uh, establish that relationship. And uh, I see Max giving us the wrap up, but we have one last question. How do trial costs break down among attorneys, uh, expert witnesses, investigators? Um, you know, sure. we, people always ask how much is it gonna cost? And A it, lot. it depends, yeah, it right. depends on how complicated things get. The, right. the more complicated, the more it's gonna cost. Right. So. Generally speaking, in the criminal defense industry, which is the space we're talking about right now, a lot of states do not allow contingency fees. So an example here in Wisconsin, I'm sure that regardless of wherever you live in our great country, you've probably seen, more likely been accosted by advertising of no fee unless we win, all this other kind of stuff, right? We call those contingency fee attorneys. Those are generally speaking car accident attorneys, personal injury attorneys. They can do that because they know that if they win, the insurance company will pay them. They can also do that because if they're good and if they're advertising, they've got enough money probably. So the odds are they're, that they're okay at a minimum. Uh, they know after talking to you for five minutes exactly how much your case is worth and then they can decide whether or not they want to take it. All right, That is not the situation in almost every other area of law. So for starters, sometimes I have people come to my office and ask for a contingency fee and I tell them this isn't a thing. In Wisconsin, it's illegal for me to do that in criminal cases, but moreover, you only see that in this particular area, and that's why, all right? Uh, generally speaking, it's gonna go something like this. You'll have a choice of either going hourly or flat fee. Maybe your attorney doesn't give you a choice. Maybe they say, here's what it's gonna be. I'm gonna do hourly at such and such a rate, 300, 400, 500, $800 an hour, whatever it might be, all right? They'll do that, or maybe they'll say flat fee, and they're gonna basically give you a flat fee option based upon what they think it's gonna be, uh, that may or may not be rooted in the exact time, but it does have to have some proportionality to the work, all right? Flat fees can work differently in, in different states. As an example, here in Wisconsin, we recently changed the way our flat fees work. Quick example, just to try to educate you folks down the lens, is it used to be for the flat fees that, uh, at the conclusion of the case, that clients could then ask for an accounting of their time, and any unused amount of hours could be refunded back or had to be refunded back to the client. 
Um, that is no longer the way that it works here, and I suspect in many other states. Now, if you pay, I'm just gonna make this up, don't anchor on this number, but if you pay $10,000 for whatever case, and the lawyer gets it dismissed with one five-minute phone call, great, that could be an earned fee. Mm -hmm. So if you don't like that, you need to be asking those questions to figure out exactly how does this work. Otherwise, you may not know until you see the contract, which maybe is coming in the mail, all yeah. right? Um, but generally speaking, you know, I always tell folks it's kind of like a race car. You know, in the race car, for every minute on the track, they need three, four, five, ten in the garage beforehand and afterwards to fix it and to, and to tune it up. Court's the same way. For every minute in court, there's going to take a bunch of minutes in order to prep, answer your questions. I assure you, there's always last-minute crises that goes on. Uh, whether it's the client who, we just had this recently, in the middle of a trial says, oh, by the way, I have all these, these, these text messages from this important witness uh, screenshotted from you know, a year ago. Were these important defense attorneys? Did you, as, the, as the person's on the stand and they never told us before, like, welcome to my day, all right? Um, so, but there's all sorts of things that go on. These are generally 15, 16, 17, 18 hour days, wrecked weekends for the attorney, wrecked evenings ahead of time. Uh, trial fees, generally speaking, depends on, upon the case, but you're gonna, for a, any kind of self-defense case, I mean, you're gonna see a five-figure bill at a minimum. And that's before we start talking about flying in experts, before we start flying in witnesses, before we talk about doing exhibits, before we talk about ordering transcripts. Odds are if your case is going to some sort of trial, you've probably had what's called a motion. A motion is maybe a motion to suppress, going back to that Miranda Goodchild thing. Maybe it's a motion to suppress evidence for lack of probable cause to do a search or something like that. And you've had maybe police officers or other folks on the stands doing testimony. There's gonna be transcripts from all those hearings. And you know what? Your attorney's gonna want those transcripts for those hearings uh, when you get to any kind of trial so that they can use that material in case somebody changes their story, modifies their story, they can anchor them to that story. So you've got fees stacked on top of fees, costs stacked on top of costs. Uh, it can get very, 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 very expensive very quickly. Uh, you know, 20, 30, 50, $80,000, uh, by no means unreasonable, maybe even more depending upon the circumstances, and that's the key thing, it's the circumstances. Is this a three-day jury trial where the states may be bringing in nine witnesses, you may have two witnesses of your own, or is this gonna turn into you know, a three-week trial because the state's got 60 witnesses to bring in, you have 10, and there's a million other variables between there and uh, you know, how, are the, how are the case goes. So yeah. are, you never we, know. are we safe to say that the state has pretty much unlimited resources to prosecute you? It feels that way yeah. when you're a defense attorney. <laughs> so. Let me put it that way. As a former state prosecutor, I assure you, they do not have unlimited resources, yeah. but they have a lot more than you, yeah. all right? Um, so it's not unlimited, but it may as well be because the prosecutor can pick up the phone. If they want somebody interviewed, they can pick up the phone and ask the detective so-and-so, go out, pick these people up, do an interview on them. Uh, if your defense attorney asks you to do the same thing, they're then going to give you the quote of how much they think the private investigator is going to charge you for it, and it's probably going to be yeah. at least in the hundreds, if you're lucky. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, our time is up, uh, Tom, <laughs> so uh, I am going to let you take over, uh, you know, the click the buttons below and give us reviews and all that sort of stuff, because I'm not all that tech savvy, gotcha. and, and, and you're much more persuasive. Well, I, I try what I can, but I, I don't know. I See, I, the disadvantage I have is that I don't have a gun, uh, you know, that my clients at least concede in order to help me persuade them, right. you know. Um, but at any rate, 
So look, um, something that really, 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 really helps us out and allows us to keep doing these videos at no cost for all of our members is if you leave us reviews. I've been told that there may have been some tech issues, so you may need to click refresh on your page and folks, thank you 10 times, 1,000 times over in advance. But we've got a special request for today, all right? So what you're doing is you're leaving a review for my firm, but specifically for a new wing that we've picked up, all right? And the new wing of the firm is for something called Divergent Family Law. That's the wing of our firm that only does family law cases. So the vast majority of our firm only does criminal cases, what we've been talking about today. But oftentimes, our clients who are facing these life-changing situations, they may also have family law components. So we opened up a brand new wing of the firm where this is all that they do. I've been told by my tech people, the people who know a lot more about all this stuff than I do, that having a bunch of people listing things about guns and so forth may not be the best thing for Google. So long story short, folks, if you want to help us out, please, 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 please think about doing so. Click refresh, leave a review on the Divergent Family Law website. If you feel comfortable doing so, it would be a tremendous honor if you left something along the lines of great family law attorneys or something like that, if you feel comfortable doing so. Keep in mind, it's gonna ask you to score us on zero to five stars. This is the internet. Four to five is a failing grade. That's just the way it works. I didn't make those rules, Google did. You, right? you don't want a B plus. I don't want a B plus, right. Five out of five stars. If you don't feel comfortable leaving some sort of family law specific review, we would tremendously appreciate just the five out of five stars. And again, from not only myself, but from our, my entire team back at our office, um, we love reading the reviews. I personally go through and reply to every single one of them. Um, so we really, really, really appreciate it, and we'd love to keep these videos going. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for being here, Tom. It's always a pleasure, and thank you folks for watching, and keep those questions coming. We have a whole staff of social media care team out there just waiting, so you can ask us questions anytime, and we'll start logging them in for the next Ask an Attorney webinar. So long, folks.